Hey guys, welcome to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from ColdSplitation.com, and I'm joined with my co-host Martin. How's it going? Pretty good. We are back again with some more Halloween season festivities. We're still deep into the heart of our Carpenter series, the So Creepy It's Carpenter series of films. So we're going through all of Carpenter's horror movies, or most of them, because we've covered a couple and couple we just didn't have time for but most of them we've done the good the bad and the ugly i think we've done the nearly the ugliest ghosts of mars and we've done some of the good like the fog and christine hopefully but have we done the great yet have we done the great i don't know i don't know what do you think I'd say Christine's pretty great. Yeah, I'd say Christine is pretty great. I think we came to that consensus on the last episode. Um, if you listen to that, you know that we had pretty pretty good things to say about Christine, which is kind of surprising because it's just never, it's not really a film that, you know, has a lot of, uh, has a lot of um, critical appraise. I don't know. I don't know why, but it just doesn't come up that often, but surprising to us. And I think we're about to talk about one of the greats. Um, the film for this episode is one of my favorites of Carpenter's uh, output. And I will say, before we say the title on here, that from the title, I had always thought of this movie, before I had seen it, as a vampire movie. Because it follows a lot of, like, the, the name... Sounds like a Hammer vampire movie. <clears throat> Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in Hammer's Prince of Darkness. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, there is Dracula Prince of Darkness. So, I've, I was always th- under the impression, like, oh, Prince of Darkness is going to be a vampire movie. There's, like, crosses on the cover. And there's, you know, the the font looks gothic and, and vampire-y. But I it's not. Being, I thought it would be an Ozzy Osbourne uh biography (laughs) no it is not either of those things it is a movie that is difficult to classify based on plot summary it is um somewhat all over the place in terms of plotting and um though it it sounds like carpenter did not write it based on the credits um he actually did and he wrote it under a pseudonym um, was it Martin Quartermass? Yes. Uh, which seems to be a nod to the Hammer Quartermass uh, film series, Quartermass, Quartermass 2 and Quartermass 3. Uh, so I'm sure that that had something to do with it. Um, I'm not, I don't really know why he wrote it as a, under the pseudonym though for this one. Um, I think... It just says he just did it as a as a like I was right yeah for the the Quatermass um, film series he he just kind of did it as an homage to that but you know other, I, this is it's kind of strange that he did this one under a pseudonym but regardless he did write this and this is um, one of those movies that falls into the Carpenter trope of exploring religion and science together um, and the impasse between the two where 
it's almost agnostic at that point. Um, is there a God? Is science involved? Can you have both? Uh, Prince of Darkness kind of looks at it from that way, and it's it, it, it's interesting because it actually has both of those camps involved, and they kind of like come together in Prince of Darkness, which I think is a really interesting idea. Um, and I think you said before we really get into you know the the nitty gritty about it that um, some some people, and I think you were was at Red Letter Media, um, had are they're doing a Carpenter. Uh, series as we're doing a Carpenter series and they actually did like a f one part of their episode series and, and I have Prince of Darkness was part of that they're kind of going through all of Carpenter's films um, and saying a lot of the same things that we had to say and I'll just throw it out there we we did it first uh, so a lot of the films we've already covered so we did it first just so you know so we're not it sounds like we're not copying red letter media and uh, you know just playing off of what they're saying so listen we, we did it first Listen, they're picking on the little guy, right? Yeah. We, you know, we're the little podcast that could. You know, I've mentioned them a couple of times on the podcast because I admire their work. They do great, you know, film analysis. Yeah. Um, and then they're out there, you know, poaching our our Content. mantra, right? Yeah. But look, I just want to they say... Gotta, they got to go, go back to Star Wars, okay? And Star Trek. We, we did it first, but we will use a phrase from their episode... And that they said, that, I think that they are the ones that said this, right? That this is like somewhat Fulci-esque. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, one of the guys, I, can't, I don't think it was Rich. I'm drawing a blank on the other guy's name right now. Uh, but yeah, he was saying how the film could be not not a favorite Carpenter film because it's Fulci-esque. I would, because I'm not um, as knowledgeable in the that area, I would just say Jallo-esque because it, from the Jallo films I've seen, this does seem like a homage to the the genre. Yeah, I, de I definitely feel the Jallo nature of it. Um, well, maybe not even so much Jallo as much. Uh, there are some moments of that, but more so just like Italian horror. And uh, you do get a lot of Argento, in my opinion. Um, more so than Fulci, although, you know, the, the kind of crazy premise kind of brings out the Fulciness of it. Uh, but I would say it's more Argento. And we, we see a lot of that in different scenes in the movie that seem almost like they're pulled from Argento uh, type of cinematography, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But Prince of Darkness, it really does have a unique feeling to it that doesn't... It, so I would say it is... Um, in line with the thing as well in terms of its mood and atmosphere and kind of bleakness um, it's it very much feels like an extend extenuation of the thing in my opinion so I think we'll leave it at that and and kind of get into our our uh, beer talk before we go too far into the film because I don't want it, to it's hard to like kind of Stop, because this is one of my favorite um, Carpenter movies. So we'll take a break real quick and get into our beer talk for the show, which is a new one that we haven't had, but it's also in line with our seasonal variety of beers that we've been having on the show lately. Um, you found this one. I did. So I'll let you take it away and kind of explain <clears throat> what it is. So I've been seeing... 
little bit of ads for this beer on the old Facebook of late because they because just like the vaccine that we got, it's tapping into our minds and seeing what oh, we you, really want. You've been seeing them on the, on the Facebook page, huh? Yeah. You see ads for the, I have not seen any ads for this. This was like a totally new thing for me. I didn't know that it was coming out. I don't know if it was an ad or if it was showing up in like the 518 brew uh, group, one of the two. But mm. I was seeing it on, uh, on the old book face and... Lo and behold, when I was at Midtown the other day, I saw it on the shelf, and I decided to grab it. And it's Captain Lawrence's Snyder's Pretzel Marzen. Now, Captain Lawrence is based in New York, downstate in uh, Elmsford. Not exactly sure where that is, but somewhere downstate. Um... And I'm pretty sure we haven't done a beer of theirs on here before. No, I don't think so. You know what? I don't really get a lot of Captain Lawrence beers uh, for no real reason. I just haven't really done a whole lot. Um, so, no, I don't think we've ever had them on the show. I know I've had, like, I think I've had, like, their standard IPA because that's kind of po- uh, not popular, but it's around. Mm-hmm. So I at least had that. But, no, you're right because... Their beers do tend to be a little more on the expensive side. Not like expensive, expensive, like the Fidens, but more, you know, instead of like ten ninety nine for a four pack, it's like fourteen ninety nine, which is what this was. But because we're in search of new Oktoberfests and Marzins, seeing as the season according to the brewers are is up in a day, we gotta find something new because everything around we've had, this is something new. And the fact that it's a pretzel marzen, and they got the Snyder's of Hanover logo on it, uh, intrigues me. Because who doesn't love a good old bag of Snyder's of Hanover mm-hmm. pretzels? So, I will say this is pretty unique, and I like the spin on it, because I think um, it's, it's true to advertisement. Usually when you get a beer... And they have like something added to it. It usually underwhelms and underperforms. Excuse me. <laughs> Here I will say the Snyder's of Hanover mini pretzels that they use to put in this beer. You feel, you taste, and it it adds a unique characteristic that is great. It you definitely get that saltiness when you drink this beer, and that's a good thing. It it pairs really well with. The overall Marzen, you definitely do get a pretzel bread breadiness to it. More, not just like a straight malty breadiness to it, but like an actual like you're biting into like a hard sourdough pretzel. Yeah, they, I will. I would say. I will say. I just want to have another sip. Though you get all those characteristics, I think the pretzel does kind of overwhelm the Marzen itself a little bit. It comes off more as just like kind of like a pretzel beer than an Oktoberfest because the overall Oktoberfestiness of the beer itself, it is kind of a little watered down. It isn't like as you know rich in flavor as you would like and expect from a beer that's like fourteen ninety nine uh, for a four pack. But I would say overall, it's a very unique spin. I think a spin that I would like to see further pursued from other brewers to see how adding like a salty pretzeliness to the beer how that works out because again when you think Oktoberfest you think you know the nice our nice Marzen styles and you pair them with big soft pretzels that are nice with you know beer cheese and mustard 
how can we, you know, get that all to work? And I think this is a great, as far as I know, first attempt at that. Yeah, I would say that this is a really interesting idea. I like it a lot. I like the uniqueness of it. Um, and like you said, so they use the Snyder's of Hanover, like, mini pretzels, pretzel twists in this brewing process. And I think it works out really well. It gives the Marzen flavor, but you're getting a really nice, like very, very reminiscent of actually eating a Snyder's pretzel um, in that taste. You get a nice saltiness to it, um, which if you've had um, really malty Marzen's before, you know that they actually tend more towards like a sweeter side. And so that saltiness paired with the Marzen sweetness, I think works really, really well. Um, and I wasn't really sure about that. I was curious about the saltiness. And you have to be careful, too, because just think about adding, like, a whole bunch of salty Snyder's pretzels to a, a brew. You have to be really careful about the moderation of those salty pretzels because uh, you don't want it to end up, like, an overall very salty beer. Um, you just want to have that hint of salt there, um, and that kind of makes you want to drink more. And I think they really captured that well here. Um and as I've been drinking this, I originally gave this a 3.75, but I really think I'm going to end up changing that to a 4. I think it's a really, really solid beer. I like the experimentation. And you're right. I wish that more people would do this. This is really in line with what I would like to see from Oktoberfest moving forward. Because, yes, we get nice Fest beers. We get nice Marzins. But they are pretty standard throughout the board. You know, and if you have one, you tend to have them all. And, and they, they change slightly. And especially depending on whether they go more towards the Festbier lightness or the Mars and heavier variety. But they tend to be really similar. I would say this one kind of goes outside the box. Definitely doesn't taste exactly like a regular Oktoberfest. I like that. And I would like to see more experimentation like that. Um, maybe to maybe to try a little chocolatier Oktoberfest or, you know, go a little bit different. I like that experimentation and that's something that I'm going to be looking for and I can see the appeal of others pursuing like a pretzel type Marzen like this. Um, it is very very distinctive in its its flavor and I think it works out really well. Utz, if you're listening, why don't you get in on this? Yeah, Partner up with somebody. I was, I was just about to say, Utz owns uh, Snyder's, which uh, I don't know how, is Utz national now? Or are they still like more northeastern? Mm, I think they're pretty national. I mean, they definitely have a presence elsewhere besides the northeast. But so I don't know if you saw this too, but there's a second Snyder beer. There's a pretzel fruit, which is um, a more German style gose. So it's passion fruit, guava, and the mini pretzels, which also sounds very interesting. Um, brewed for the Oktoberfest season. So that's another one we'll have to try to find. I don't know if they had that one when you were there, but that's one that we'll have to try to seek out as well because that sounds really good. And based on this experiment, I definitely would try a different pretzel-style beer from Captain Lawrence. This is really good. And um, if you're really into Oktoberfest and you want to try something a little bit different, if you can find the Captain Lawrence Snyder beer, check it out. I mean, besides this and Saranac's long-forgotten Darktoberfest, I mean, what variations on the Oktoberfest have we really had? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. Besides whether they're maltier or less malty and light, 
those are really the the two change-ups that you can have with an Oktoberfest. So I really enjoy this. Definitely try to look for it. I don't think you'll be disappointed. I'm looking at the Beer Advocate page right now, which, by the way, a site I haven't been on since fucking Untapped came out. But looking at the Darktoberfest right now, and just thinking of, like, where have you gone? <laughs> where did you come from? Where did you go? Have you been on Beer Advocate at all? Do you, like, do you even venture there anymore? Not really, no. People are way more... Uh, it's almost like a joke, actually, to like go and read the reviews and be like, you know, all of their the tasting notes, the visual notes. It's like, come on, man. Drink the beer. Did I you was. like it? Did you not like it? Well, that's why I kind of fell out of love with that site to begin with. Cause like, all right, you're you're not a sommelier, right? You're not yeah, tasting it's... any allspice in there. It's overwhelmingly ridiculous how much people put into their like their uh, tasting notes that just doesn't even. Look at that. Saranac White IPA hasn't even been updated in probably fucking years because. When is it available? Year-round. Hasn't it been, like, available since, like, 2012? But, yeah, it's year-round. Assholes. Michael in Canada just had a white IPA. I commented, and I said, you know what? I, said, I love white IPAs. It's great. It, again, it pisses me off. Why is it, like, not just Saranac, but why why black IPAs and red IPAs over white, white IPAs? White mm -hmm. IPAs have so much more to offer. All right, so search out Snyder Beer for sure, and then when you're when you're typing that in your search, it's B I E R. How much do you think it costs for them to get the rights to put the Snyders of Hanover on the beer can? Not sure. I mean, I obviously worked with them, so maybe it was a mutual thing. Maybe it was like artisanal with the Warheads. They worked to get rights for it, and they had to use the specific, you know, specific product. Don't know. Now, I want to see a Snyder's of Hanover uh, honey mustard pretzels, uh, Marzen. Honey mustard and onion pretzel. Oh! <laughs> I can just imagine the farts. Or, or, the, or the, like, buffalo, you know, the buffalo <laughs> chicken wing bite. Oof. Those honey Man. mustard ones are fucking fantastic, though. I love those. They are. I haven't had them forever. But yeah, they destroy my stomach. It's all the same thing with like the buffalo, the buffalo yeah. ones too. Those are like wait, like after like it's like kind of like a dill pickle chip. It's like all right, that's nice, and then after like, a couple, of them, like all right, I'm done. You know what? Where's the combos beer? That'd be you good. Those pepperoni pizza combo beers. No, no, the best ones are the the tortilla ones, like the salsa ones. Those are the best combos. What a flavor profile those would be. <laughs> It's chalky and pasty, but somehow <laughs> it shouldn't be good, but somehow delicious. <laughs> yeah, I, right. changed my, I, I changed mine to a four, too. Yeah, I'm giving it a four. It's real tasty. I, I I'm already on, no, already on number two. Same. So you know. Yeah. I know. Everyone heard yours, yours get cracked open. <laughs> so let's talk about John Carpenter's A Prince of Darkness. Thank you. You saved me the embarrassment of not saying the 
the intro John Carpenter element. Yeah, but I fucked it up because I said a Prince of Darkness. It's, it's not Prince a Dark- Prince of Darkness. It is no, the John- Prince of Darkness. It, there's only one Prince of Darkness. It's the Prince of Darkness. Alice Cooper! Yeah, Alice Cooper, yeah. No, so Prince of Darkness is definitely one of my favorite Carpenter movies. And I'll start off by saying it's one of my favorite Carpenter movies because of the mood. The mood in this film is like seeing that person that is just always miserable. (laughs) And you're like, you don't even want to talk to that person because you know. You know by just looking at them today, tomorrow, for the rest of time, they're miserable. And I feel like that is exactly what happens in Prince of Darkness. Like, right from the beginning of the movie. Because what gets set up is a very... It's almost montage-like at the beginning of the movie for about 10 minutes of... It's like a montage. Because it's set to Carpenter and Alan Howard's score of this very plodding, moody choral almost with a synth score um you know almost like sort of like religious choral composition set to various scenes of donald pleasance's character who in this he's playing um a uh a uh, priest he's playing just in this he's not really called anything he's just the priest um, he's playing a priest who has discovered, like, oh, wow, the apocalypse is coming, the Prince of Darkness is, uh, is trying to, you know, escape from his bindings, and he goes to Professor Byrak, who leads, like, a, almost, like, a metaphysical, um... Theoretical physicist. Yeah, theoretical physicist, uh, college, um, course with a bunch of different uh, young professionals who have very differing uh, areas of study. So he goes to them and basically asks for help. Like, we need to combine religion with science to figure out what to do about this apocalyptic issue that's happening. And um, this is this kind of all takes place without much dialogue. And even at the beginning of the movie, you can see sometimes, like, they're talking, but we're not getting that dialogue. So that's an intentional directorial decision to show this almost montage-like sequence that just continues to seem even more and more grim and like uh, disturbing the longer it goes on. And I think that's really aided by the um, the overwhelming score that's that's happening in the background. I think like we we can't really even start to discuss this movie until we talk about what I think is one of the best scores that Carpenter and Howard worked on. Um, you know, obviously we love the thing and the score for the thing, but I really think Prince of Darkness embodies the mood of this movie with its score. Um, so I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit cause I, I could just continue to gush about it, but I'll let you, <laughs> I'll let you add some, some thoughts in there. Yeah, um, this is one of the Carpenter films I've never seen before, um, and we talked about that before because you have mentioned this film several times on the podcast as a favorite of yours. Um, all I knew going into it that it was kind of like a Jallo-esque Italian horror film, um, 
And that's about it. It's not anything that I was ever exposed to because it was never anything that played on TV when we were young. I even never remember seeing it like at the video store. Um, go, so going into it, I had you know kind of just uh, a pretty you know blank idea of what to expect. You know, it's like all right, Donald Pleasance in it, you know, and Victor Wong and uh, Dennis Dunn from Big Trouble in Little China are also in it, which you know is the film Carpenter did before this. So I knew a little bit what to expect from some of the actors. And kind of like have a general idea of what the plot was going to be like. And you're right, it definitely is a very somber, plotting, miserable affair. And very much the way the thing is a very miserable, plotting, somber affair with a lot of creepy elements to it. Which is probably why, I mean, you know... It's, it's definitely re- not, I wouldn't say as creepy as The Thing, but it's up there. It's definitely, I'd probably say Carpenter's second creepiest film outside The Thing. And it does, though it's a slow burn throughout the film, it is, uh, it's, it's, pr- it's engaging. And it keeps you engaged the entire time with what the visual effects are, what's going on, and what the premise of the story is. And I think it is a unique, as you said, a unique premise combining science and religion and you know this is like you know it's not the first or last time we'll see carpenter kind of use like catholicism in his film as like kind of a plot element because you know we already saw that in vampires uh, with the church so like this now we got another church conspiracy going on yeah i mean i think that right away it's really engaging because there is that element of science and religion um, very clearly, and there's two camps to this. Like, Byrak doesn't really have... I mean, he obviously has worked with the priest in the past, and, and um, they have some knowledge of each other and what they do, but there is definitely two camps to this in that Donald Pleasance is very much devoted to the religious aspect of what they're doing. Um, even so far as there's like been guardians that have been tasked with keep basically keeping track of this, um, very large, uh, green fluid that's been kept in a tank for years and years and years. Um, and so he's really of the religious camp. And then you have Byrak and a lot of the, the, uh, college graduate students who are coming in from their various scientific backgrounds uh, from radiologists to um, like metaphysics and, and theoretical physics, they're all coming in from different backgrounds and mathematics to study what's going on in this church. And so, obviously, those people are not really focused on the religious aspect of what's going on. They're focused on the realistic aspect of what's going going on. What's what's actually happening that they can capture in data. And so, it kind of brings the best of both of those aspects together where they have to work together to figure out exactly what's going on. And um, what I like about having those two elements together is that um, both of them kind of figure out that there's no real one answer to this problem. There's no solution to it where you can effectively say, yeah, we can solve this with science or yeah, we can solve this with religion and 
Uh, if we just pray hard enough to God, he'll save us from the Prince of Darkness. Um, I, will say, I, will say, I will say, though, I think the difference is that Donald Pleasance is very much like he is deeply rooted in his faith. The scientists, all these scientists, they come in with a skepticism, though, that, like, mm. maybe we are dealing with something that we don't understand and could be, like, you know, supernatural or whatever. And, you know, they, they're not, like, it's not all, like, no, there's no such thing as, you know, as, you know, the supernatural. They, like, have, like, a skepticism. Because, again, one of the things they talk about, like, when you have our low-rent Tom Atkins and our his love interest in this film... Uh, walking, they're talking about. Sh- no, actually, no, I forgot. No, sorry. It's Dennis Dunn and uh, Tom Atkins' love interest. What they're walking around, they're talking about the Schrodinger's cat thing, where like you know you can't know unless you're particularly observing that act. You know, talking about that idea, and so that like that was kind of like the kind of the whole crux of the film for them, at least, is like, is it science? Is it supernatural? Who knows, but we're going to try to at least go out and run the tests that we can to find out. Yeah, and and so it's bringing those together uh, into a, you know, it, it, there's a lot of characters. There's a lot of different backgrounds here. And I think that works uh, to the film's favor, too, because um, the church is kind of like a, a mysterious atmosphere. Because Carpenter doesn't really take a lot of time to develop exactly the layout of the church. And so all of these characters kind of come and go and they get lost in the church. And that's part of the appeal of Prince of Darkness is that as you're watching, like some of these characters kind of disappear and um, the the other characters are concerned and they're like, I'm not really sure where they went. Did they leave? Did they, you know, did they go find someplace else to be? Did they uh, decide that this is a crock of shit and they're going to give up on the whole thing? Um, And that's kind of like how they get picked off one by one. Um, sort of like a slasher element, except the slasher is an invasion of the body snatchers type thing um, that is basically presented because of the green fluid piss that comes out of uh, (laughs) this uh, tank of green fluid that's ultimately always swirling in this uh, church. I don't know what you'd call it, but like it's... uh, I don't know what that a nave maybe I don't know what the the term for the specific part of the church is where this is kept but um, it's an interesting idea and I think that you know had they just ex- had the film just explored that idea of religion and science and and uh, and that sort of thing it, it would have been an effective film on its own but Carpenter goes even further and Prince of Darkness kind of gets into some very different territory. Um, that is a lot more complicated than what Carpenter normally does with films. Um, normally, his films are fairly straightforward. I mean, even The Thing is fairly straightforward, despite the, like, it, 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 at its heart, simplistic, even though it does have a lot of nuance to the ways that it looks at panic and anxiety and um, mis- distrust of other people. Um, in Prince of Darkness it has a lot of different elements to the storyline. So it, it's not just involved with this uh, this coming of the Prince of Darkness. It's also has to do with um, telep- telepathy almost, like uh, shared experience, um, and t- 
tachyons and um, basically future memories or, or, or footage that can be beamed to people in the past so that they can ultimately try to stop whatever is going to occur in the future from happening. Uh, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty complicated for a Carpenter film. And I, I think that that's what really makes me admire Prince of Darkness too, because it's not just a simple storyline. It, it, it has a lot going on. And I will say that I think a lot of the science is, is a lot of mumbo jumbo that's in here that doesn't, you know, it's, it's hard, sometimes hard to follow exactly what Carpenter is trying to say. But at the same time, I think it works well to give a lot of different um, feeling to the movie and and, and uh, open it up for different um, conversation. Like I said, like I said, told you, uh, it's te- it's uh, Star Trek techno babble. Mm-hmm. It's uh, like I said, he got drunk one night, saw Carl Sagan's Cosmos on PBS. He's like, ah. Big Bang and that Supernova is pretty cool shit and Adams and what if we made a movie? I make a movie. Going to bed now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's it's a lot of mumbo jumbo. There's a lot here that it doesn't necessarily make sense. It's not really like we're supposed to follow this and and be like, yeah, that you know that that's totally steeped in realism. Um, it's obviously really stretching science, but at the same time. Like, I think it's interesting because it has such a unique um, message here. Like, you know, I don't know. It's just, it just has a lot going on that I think it makes it fairly successful, even though you might think, like, the, the science is kind of hokey. Um, so, like, it also involves the homeless assembling and uh, led by Alice Cooper, of course. Who shows up in like pale face, um, and uh, leads the group of homeless against uh, other people? What do What do you think of the homeless aspect of it? Like, what is what is Carpenter really doing with the homeless people in this movie? They're the drugs of society and need to be rounded up and shipped away from California. I mean, well, that's 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 not the point. I mean, it's certainly you know the, the film even brings up like they are the dregs, and in some capacity, he, the Prince of Darkness is able to funnel them easier to do his bidding than you know other people that, and they also recognize the the illness of what's going on the the apocalyptic moment. Um, it's an interesting idea. Um, I don't know if it treats them in a great light, uh, considering like contemporary. No, they call them schizo- schizophrenia. <laughs> yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah, it's like schi- all these just... homeless people are, you know, schizos on the street. Um, don't know what they're doing, and so they're easily rounded up by evil, <laughs> and they do evil's bidding. Uh, so I think it's. I, I mean, it does, I don't know if it fares completely well, but. Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting concept, at least, and um, it 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 adds turn them a, into zombies. Yeah, are they, are they are they zombies or not zombies? Uh, they are not zombies. I would say they're not because once the Prince of Darkness has dissipated, uh, his hold is dissipated. They kind of just go back to their normal life, as you can <laughs> see at the end of the movie. Like they kind of just like what happened? Uh, I don't know. 
Um, all right, well, I'm just going to go back and find some bread. They go back to Venice Beach to go, change, space change, (laughs) change. That's a South Park episode. Night of the Living Homeless. They turn them into zombies, essentially. It's hilarious. But it does lead to a, um, a fun little scene where one of the guys decides, like, he's fed up with the whole situation. He's going to leave. So he's out by himself in the, in the parking lot outside of the church. And a homeless person runs up and stabs him. And ultimately... Hold on. Not a homeless person. The homeless person. It's Alice Cooper. Well, is it Alice Cooper that actually stabs him? With the cane? No. Are so, we, Are you not, talking about the one with the scissors, or are you talking about the one with the Yeah, the one with the, the scissors. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's not Alice Cooper. That's... No, no. The other one is when he sees, like, the bat on the cross, and then Alice Cooper stabs him, but... No, the, the one that I'm talking about is when he's stabbed multiple times with the scissors. Again, very jello. Yes, very jello esque there. Italian esque, you know. Yeah, so that scene really reminds me of Argento's uh, scenes in Suspiria and Inferno, where you have very, very, very open areas, which in most cases would seem to be somewhat safe. safe. Yeah, because they're open, they're in like a public place. And I think that's what really what Carpenter was getting at, too, because these are shot very widely. And they feel a lot like that scene in Suspiria where the um, the dog attack occurs. Uh, so it, it does have an, a nice um, um, juxtaposition between being safe in an outdoor public space and you know being violently murdered by a person with scissors. Um, and and I, th- I think that works really well, but it also leads to a phenomena-type scenario where the bugs assemble and form this guy again into, like, a, a person shape and deliver a message to the rest of the people in the church, which I think is an interesting idea that doesn't really come up too much in the movie but seems to just indicate again, like the power of Satan to be able to influence like lesser things. What do you think about that scene where where basically the the insects all form the shape of the person and he delivers it in like a very raspy um, insectoid voice, like vocoder voice? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's really cool and like the whole you know get getting stabbed with scissors. It's all cool and stuff, but again, at the same time, it's like, uh, I do kind of feel like, well, I've seen that before. little deja vu there. Because the whole, and the same thing throughout the whole film with the whole bugs, all I was thinking of was like phenomena. Because that was like the main crux and one of the main plot points throughout the film. <clears throat> and I don't know if they do this in another Italian horror film. I think they do, though, quite often use like bugs as like a means to like, you know, ooh, you know, creepy, rotting, etc., so you kind of got that there, which, you know, again, it's not a bad thing, but at the same time, it kind of feels like, all right, I've seen that already before, you know, nothing new, but it's still cool. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting idea, like, and it just shows, like, how much is actually going on in 
Prince of Darkness because that's just one scene that really doesn't come up too much again with the bugs. But uh, if anything, I think the cooler part is when after he says his little message and his like fucking head falls off and his leg falls off and you see like you know the bugs coming crawling out afterwards. That's like the cool part about it. Yep. Yep. Um. So the other thing that I think is um, pretty interesting is the uh, scenario where uh, the Prince of Darkness has to use, like, almost like a parasite, has to use a, a body to come into the world. And uh, he uses uh, Susan as that, um, that conduit for this world. And there's a whole transformation sequence that occurs while um, Dennis Dunn's character is stuck in a closet. It's kind of just like, it, and it's not only a closet, but it's like a confessional closet. Um, and he's stuck in there watching as this transformation takes place while the rest of the people that the Prince of Darkness is using kind of just stand there. And he's cracking jokes at them. Um, what did you think about the transformation sequence? The, the makeup and stuff. It's pretty cool. It was really cool watching, like, you know, her swell up and look bloated and then kind of shrink down. And you see, like, her skin rotting. The whole sequence is pretty good and looks good, for the, especially for the small budget that the film was on. Yeah, I think the, the makeup effects they did with her face are really um, compelling. They, they look really good. Um, and she's able to actually uh, use her expressions, too, to, to, to great effect. Um, because she has like a face with the eyes that just kind of pop out with the 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 um, decay that's happening on her face. I think it's really one of the one of the nice creepy scenes in Prince of Darkness. That leads me to the other creepy scene that I think is really effective um, is when Lisa is um, attacked and she is basically puked on and becomes one of the Prince of Darkness's slaves, and she goes back to the typewriter that she's been, or the computer that she's working on, and is just, like, staring off into space while she's, like, translating this, uh, text, like, in at ridiculous time, and, um, one of the especially guys... For, especially for 1987, that typing speed, unheard of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a really effective scene. I think, um, Ann Yen does a good job with that, because... It's really disconcerting to see her just typing away like that. Um, it's staring just straight ahead. It's uh, I think it works really well. Not only that, but it's paired with some really great, uh, almost like blasphemous writing. She's she writes, um, uh, "You will not be saved by the Holy Ghost. You will not be saved by uh, something like Jesus Christ. In fact, you will not be saved." <laughs> it's uh, it's like a good. I don't know. It's it's almost like a like a pun or something that the Prince of Darkness is making. You can see like he kind of sees that as like a funny. It's almost a, it's joke. A, it's, say it's exorcist like. Mm-hmm. You know, like where the, the demon and the exorcist is just trolling everyone throughout. You know, that's like a nice little troll from the Prince of Dark. You know, the embodiment of Satan in this film. Yeah. No, it, it definitely like, it definitely is one of the better. Uh, you know, better little bits in this film. Yeah, it's probably one of my favorite scenes because um, it's, it's very effective and the I think Ann Yen does a really, really good job with that. Um, I also really like Dennis Dunn's character in general. It's pretty funny. Um, there's that one line where he says that 
Lisa doesn't. Uh, Lisa could pass for Asian, and then later on he's like, "I take it back. You don't look Asian at all." <laughs> um, and the other uh, person that I really like is um, uh, Doctor Leahy, who's like the older guy that's like cracking jokes uh, throughout. I, I I think he does a really good job in this too. But uh, I think everyone is really pretty solid in their roles. Um, I was gonna say just like uh, just like the fog, it's another ensemble cast. No one's like really too you know. Yeah. No one's really the main focus of this film. It's yeah, not, not not really. Like everyone has some presence here. So that leads us. We talked about this a little bit. But Jameson Parker is really giving Tom Atkins a run for his money with them in the mustache department. It's beautiful. His mustache, I should say, is better. It's more, much more thick than Tom Atkins' mustache. Oh, it's very bushy. But as you said, it is a little uneven. Like <laughs> his his right side drags down like a little bit longer. Yeah. But yeah. it's still great. I yeah. love it. The uh, the mustache is a little uneven. It's a little bushy, but you know what? You can, you can forgive him for that, because it's a very fine mustache, and I do think it's better than Tom Atkins' mustache. So, what do you think the casting was like? Was it like we need to get Tom Atkins, but he's got to be a younger guy this time? So they were like, hmm. We can't like like after like the past couple of films of Tom Atkins hooking up with women twenty years is young. Yeah, right. They're like, they're like, you know what? It's not. That's not gonna fly. It's not gonna fly this time. Not gonna work with the fiery redhead Lisa. Blount. Which, which again, by the way, like, what's he do? He's like, Hi, yeah, would you like to have a cup of coffee? Let's have a cup of coffee. And then, like, the next next thing you see him is they're in bed, waking up after a night of coitus. You know. Hey, why? Just not? like just just like Tom Atkins in the fog. Yeah, let's. Yeah, I'll give you a ride. Wake up. Then the next scene, oh, we're waking up from fucking. And just like yeah, nothing happened. Yeah. You know? Well, you know when you see um, Catherine as the fiery redhead of the group, she's going to have some involvement here in the the uh, you know the the banishment of the Prince of Darkness because you can't have a redhead in the film that's not part of the main plot that's going to have some mysterious connection, right? Because the the red the redness is like it gives it away. They're they're different. They're they're, you know, mysterious and and how could they? How can someone possibly just have red hair? They must they must have some connection to the supernatural. So you know, Catherine's going to have some involvement, and she does. Ultimately, at the end of the movie, there's a lot of mumbo jumbo about what the mirror means and you know why there is like the mirror is an element of what can banish the Prince of Darkness and. And how there's matter and antimatter, and the mirror represents, you know, the anti of this scenario. It's all kind of mumbo jumbo, and I will say that Carpenter doesn't really, um, doesn't Explain really define it. that too well. It's no, kind of just like, it, see, this is like kind of one of the parts. I mean, it's cool, and sorry to step on you, but I mean, it's cool, but it, it kind of pisses me off at the end of the day because one of the things you have, like, uh, you know, Victor Wong talking about is like the potential you know the pot- the potentiality for a mere universes and you know mere particles etc like so that's why you have matter and antimatter etc 
where they're going through all the techno babble. And then at the end of the film, it's literally, how do we get the, you know, the Antichrist into our world? Oh, we're going to pull him through a fucking mirror. Like, that wasn't, it wasn't part, like, it kind of explained it all. Like, it's like, oh, okay, you're going, like, literal, like, mirror universe. Like, <laughs> you know, uses demon magic to pull the devil or whatever through, you know. It it looked cool and ended up working out really cool, but I mean, I think it's just kind of a poorly explained kind of like, oh, okay, so that's what we're doing here type of bit in the film. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's probably the, the part of Prince of Darkness that does suffer the most is the mirror element to it because it doesn't really get explained too well. Um, there's not really much context in the way of it and so you kind of just have to go with it at the end of the movie you kind of are going based on what carpenter is giving us and that's that anybody that's sees themselves in the mirror kind of gets obsessed with the mirror and kind of just stands there looking at themselves in the mirror and um there's no real rhyme or reason to to why like the prince of darkness has to manifest in another person and then pull this uh, the the actual physical embodiment of the Prince of Darkness through the mirror. There's not. It doesn't. You know. I think it's really messy at that point. Hell, hell. We have them trying to grab them through a little pocket mirror, and they're like, "Oh no, he's too big for it, so it breaks." But, and then like, you yeah, know. It's, it's it's definitely messy. I definitely I don't. You know, it's not really something that. Got um, keep that logical consistency, but the whole like, yeah, we're trying to grab the. Satan through the mirror. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't... Uh, there's not much... It's It should have been explained a little bit better, but what we do get at the end is there's, like, this face-off between will religion actually fix... Win the day. Yeah, fix this problem, or does someone scientific have to intervene, and it ends up being, like, a little bit of both. Catherine is kind of doomed to live out whatever days she has in this other mirror scenario and who knows what that means does it mean that she just dies does it mean that she well, lives with the prince of darkness over there well does it mean that she yeah like at the end of the film what it shows does she actually become the prince of darkness evil that manifests later on in 1990 blank 1999 yeah 1999 um and then donald pleasance's character the priest kind of jumps the gun a little bit and is like you know what she just we jumped did. through the mirror. I'll close it. I'll close that path. <laughs> Who cares about getting her back? I'm going to throw an axe at it. So it's a little bit of both. Religion and science both help to close this portal. Well, I was going to ask you. So at the end, when Kat, Catherine's sitting there and you got Donald Pleasance going like, No, 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 no. And she's standing there. She looks at him and looks at the mirror and then looks at you know, Kelly, and then looks at the one guy, and looks at the other guy, but she hesitates and seems to kind of, like, shake her head like something's going on. Do you think she got possessed in that moment? Like, then maybe she acted like, you know, not as herself? Mm. Did, like, like when she got touched by, like, uh, Dr. Leahy, like, did any of that juice get onto her? Like, was she then, like, possessed? Do you think she was still her? Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't know. It's 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 kind of left open ended. Um, I just I think the interesting thing ends up being that 
you know, did they really end up winning? Or did it just change the future? Because ultimately, the transmission changes and it's no longer this dark male figure in the transmission, but it's now uh, clearly Catherine in the transmission. And it kind of just ended up changing what happens in the future. There's a lot going on here. And I don't, you know, it's it's pretty open ended. As I say, is it is it the uh, you know is it Satan fucking with them? Is like the visions that our low rent Tom Atkins is seeing now? Is it, are they visions? Are they dreams? Are is he just hallucinating? Yeah. Is it the real future? Is it like a future they're trying to protect? Is it the future that Satan wanted? Who knows? That's the fun. Yep, you're kind of left open ended. But the only thing that is that remains true is that. The film is pretty grim throughout. It's it it doesn't really have a lot of hope to it, um, and I think that plays out at the end of the movie too. That there's not really much hope here that our characters can actually win. They're just denying the inevitable at this point. Which is every one of these uh, apocalypse films from Carpenter, because the thing throughout is, as we said, foreboding, miserable. And as we said as well when we reviewed Into the Mouth of Madness, it's also foreboding, miserable, and just like our protagonist trying to fight against inevitability. So it's nice to see some consistency in themes throughout. Yeah, I mean, I I think that this, like the thing, it is a really successful movie because it is so foreboding, and it's not doesn't really have a happy ending to it. It doesn't have any sort of resolution that you can feel good about. It is sort of like misanthropic and um, it, it kind of anticipates the worst. And I think that really comes about because of the score. The score is just really um, intense. And I would say it's, it's pretty all present too. It's like all enveloping. Um, We've talked about films before that seem to have like a score that just never ends. Like it, it, it's always present in the background, and then sometimes that can actually impact how you view the film because it's it almost seems like it's just too much. The the atmosphere of that um, soundtrack is, is overwhelming to the movie. But I think that's the opposite case in Prince of Darkness. I like that it's like constantly there, constantly in the background, constantly pushing the movie forward. Constantly giving the viewer a very op- oppressive atmosphere. I agree. And just like the thing, it's um, not so much into the mouth of madness because that's got more of a Metallica theme. But here, it's definitely got like that, like heartbeat, like you know, thumping, a constant, like you know, like dun dun, dun dun. Dun, dun, you know, playing throughout the film and then, like, with added bits to the score to, like, you know, heighten or makes, you know, the tension in certain scenes. It uh, works really well. It's definitely one of Carpenter's best scores, and it's one of the... I think it fits the film throughout. Like, you know, it. this is a time where it being used throughout the entire film does work and give us Incredibles overall sense of dread and impending doom. Which the film's trying to kind of go for. So it definitely fits. Um, let's see. Anything else? So, that- one, 
Yeah, one of the things I gotta say, yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was the overall like cinematography and some of like the kind of uh, shots in this film because again, it's as I said, the film had reminds me a lot of the Italian horror that I've seen so far and kind of either aping or homaging, ripping off, whatever you want to call it. But I would say almost probably outside of the thing, it's probably one of Carpenter's best shot films, one of his best looking films. And, like, one of the most, like, thought-out films when it comes to, like, shot composition, how his shots are kind of set up, the effects that kind of go in it. Because, like, one of the best, I think, coolest, like, shots that he has in the film is, like, the bit where we have uh, Kelly when she's being, like, imbibed with the essence of Satan and you see it flowing, like, you know, in reverse, like it's you know supposed to be going you know from the seal you know the ceiling to her, but like the shots going in reverse, you know that's really cool. And like the scenes of like the Essis and Satan as it's like dripping from the container, but it's dripping in reverse. Like it, you know, the real simple things, but again, like adds a lot of like depth and like you know like eeriness to what's going on. And like com- if you compare this to say like something that goes to Mars, it's definitely you know I mean obviously night and day, but it's definitely one of Carpenter's most interesting looking films that he shot and not only that, on the budget that they did is what kind of makes it more remarkable because it was only shot on $3 million, he did it in 30 days and the fact that they put that much effort into how the film looks is, you know says a lot Yeah, I agree, I mean it, it. so you can tell in some ways, like it is a cheaper looking movie in the fact that it doesn't really have a huge set. It's know. one build. It's one building. Yep. It's it's kind of contained, so it doesn't need to have too much involvement. So you've got to you basically get an exterior and an interior, and that's pretty much it. So you know, from that aspect, you can kind of understand like there's not a lot of uh, big budget set work going on, but. Um, other than that, though, like three million is really not that much, especially with the the cast that we've got going on. Donald Pleasance himself, and uh, you know, having Alice Cooper here, so so casting um, for three million is really not too much, and um, you know, it, it definitely has a lot of good budgetary effects. Um, you know, I, I I quite like a lot of the um, the the actual physical effects that they've done. Um, I think it works really well. The other thing is that Prince of Darkness, um, it's definitely more violent than some of other uh, of Carpenter's movies. You know, it, it, it certainly has some moments of, of explicit violence on screen, but it's also, it, it does tend to have a lot of that left um, off screen too. So kind of gets away with both. And so you don't need to have as many like prosthetic props and things like that for for this either. So three million is is definitely cheap, but it doesn't really look like that in this movie. Um, so I, I I do think that's an accomplishment in its in itself, um, and it, it also helps too that you have Carpenter writing, directing, doing the score, and and, and you know uh, production on it too. Um, that helps because it's a pretty contained uh, um, film uh, 
process for them, you know, not have to have too many people involved. I, I like I said, I was, I was, I was more overall asking me like, what do you think though about like the overall like cinematography? Because like, what, like I said, like one of the things we complained about in his lesser films, especially like the later '90s, is how like cheap and TV like film esque and crappy the films look not just like on budget but yeah. like just like how he's just like all right point the camera fucking shoot it and let's go like you know because like everything goes to mars is just like static shot static shot you know just like no yeah it's know. definitely definitely more enthusiastic it's got more intricacy to it um like i said you know there i would say that ghost of mars doesn't really have any um cinematography like you said, that's not static. That doesn't really just show the audience what they need to see. Prince of Darkness is a little bit different. It has more nuance and metaphor to what it's, how it's displaying the um, the video, how it's displaying shots. Like I said, there's that whole sequence where um, Dennis Dunn's character is literally in a confessional booth. So not only is it just like a closet, but you have... Um, him they're them using light to display the confessional um pattern of the window onto Dennis Dunn's face. And so that that has more religious undertone to it too. Like um so there's more metaphor in the cinematography than what you would get in later Carpenter movies. And I think that's that really works. We we kind of talk about the the Jallo element in the Argento um, influence on some of the other sequences, but I, I mean, I think it definitely seems like Carpenter is is more interested in this idea. Like he wrote it, he uh, he came up with the story. Whereas in Ghost of Mars and some of those other ones, they were more like a job. It was just like we just got to shoot this and get it done because it's a job. Um, it doesn't feel like that in Prince of Darkness. It feels like this is something that he really cares for. So I think that comes off in the, the cinematography, too. It's, it's just got more thought to it. There's more um, there's more nuance to what he's looking to, how he's looking to shoot it. I think that it just comes off in, in the, the full um, brunt of the film. Oh, let's see. What else did we get to? Um, pretty much talked about everything that I wanted to to get in here. Um, I think that's about it. Did you have anything else that you you wanted to get in um, about the film or any sequences or anything like that? No, I think that's about it. I think we covered it. This All is right. your baby. I wanted you to. Yeah, I, I kind of just kept going, so appreciate you uh, not jumping all over me to to wrap it up. Well, listen, I got nothing better to do, and listen, we did She's All That for me, we'll do Prince of Darkness there, for you. There you go. Alright, so, on a scale of 1 to 10 giant buckets of slime fluid, what would you give Prince of Darkness? <clears throat> It's tough. It really is kind of tough to rate. I'm going to say probably... I'll give it an eight and a half. Though I'll add the caveat that I'd say... 
I don't quite think it's good enough to be an 8.5, but it's definitely not low enough to be an 8. Because I gave The Fog an 8, and I like this film more than I like The Fog. So I'll, I'll give it an 8.5. Otherwise, yeah. everyone knows our ratings are always tentative and to be changed. But, so, I mean, I enjoy this film. I think, out of all the Jallo films, like, style films that we've done on this film, Italian horror, I've always kind of liked the ideas that they present, but for the most part, they don't... Outside of, like, Tenebrae, they always end up to be, like, a little bit too meandering and lists, like, yeah, you got good ideas for shots and, like, an idea for a story, but you meander too much. I think Carpenter does a great job of taking the concepts and ideas from Italian horror and distilling it into something for my dumb American brain and making it interesting, having a cool idea, but also focused in having those, like, Italian horror aspects with, like, the effects, shots, and ideas. I think this film, like, uh, could benefit a lot, actually, from being longer to kind of explain more of what's actually going on with, like, some of the backstory. Whereas, like, you know, the remake of Suspiria, I think, also benefited the original Suspiria because the original Suspiria is a great visual experience, but there's not much actually tying it to anything. It's just, like, you know great shots, and then the remake added a whole lot more interesting depth to the plot. I think, like, if someone were ever to remake this film, that would be a great thing to do, is, like, make a more elaborate film of this, because I think there's a lot... There's, it's a very interesting premise that I don't think is fully realized or explained, because um, none of Carpenter's films are really have, like, a fully realized idea for the most part, but it's still interesting enough I think, for the most part, Donald Pleasance, as always, is a great kooky delight in this. Dennis Dunn and Victor Wong are also great. It's definitely more of an ensemble cast as, like, The Fog, so, like, no one's really, like, stealing the show, but I think everyone's role is done well enough. I like how the people are possessed and how, like, you know, it's, like, through this, like, nice little spit and, like, the effects that come from it and what kind of happens and how the ending is left open ending. I think it's very interesting. And it makes me, and it's also one of Carpenter's best scored films. I like that nice driving pulse that the film has. Um, overall, I'd say eight and a half. Like I said, I would say probably like, probably like more like an 8.3, but we don't rate like that. So I'll bump it up to the eight and a half. I, it's a film I wish I kind of got to, to experience in my youth. But if you're somebody who's looking to like experience Italian horror, but you're not, you're not somebody who knows anything about it. I think this dumbs it down for your, us Americans. Yeah, I would, give it a, I would give it a nine. I really enjoy Prince of Darkness. It's one of my favorite Carpenter films. Um, I, it, a lot of that has to do with this, the score. It's probably one of my favorite scores that Carpenter's done. I think it's just omnipresent throughout, and it really lends a very apocalyptic, uh, brooding tone to the film that almost acts as though a lot of the film scenes are montages to the, the soundtrack. Um, and it kind of just builds and builds and builds, um, leading you to just have this really foreboding feeling of something bad is going to occur. And that works really well in Prince of Darkness and because something bad does occur. And um, the film kind of leads up to that in a very slow but methodical way. Um, at an hour and 40 minutes, you know, it, it is a little bit longer than a normal uh, horror film, but I think it uses that to its advantage, gives a lot of context, 
Um, and it also adds a lot of scientific mumbo jumbo to the mix that, you know, obviously doesn't always make a whole lot of sense. We talked about the whole mirror aspect of there being a, a god and an anti-god through the mirror. It's not really um, given too much information for the, the audience to figure out exactly what Carpenter means by all of that. Um, but what I think it really comes down to is the fact that there isn't really an answer in Carpenter's mind. Is there God? Is there uh, just science? Is there a mix of something in between? Um, I think what the ultimate um, end of this movie comes to to uh, conclude with is there is no conclusion. Uh, it's more, it's almost agnostic in the way that it, it doesn't really know where science and supernatural kind of draw the line. And I like that. I think that's a really good idea and a really nice way to end this movie. Very open-ended, let the audience draw their conclusions. So I, I, I really like Prince of Darkness for that, for all of those reasons. But it overall is just a really good film. Has those jello elements to it. Um, has a great mustache, um, and then it has some good writing with characters that are and, and actors that are able to deliver um, some comedy, some creepiness, and Donald Pleasance just being you know being a late '80s version of Donald Pleasance is always a treat too. So overall, I recommend you checking out Prince of Darkness at least one time. See what you think. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. But I really, really like it, especially if you can get in the mood of the film. Alright, so that's our episode on Prince of Darkness. What do we got next? What are we doing next? I believe next up is um, Village of the Damned, I think. Is it that or the Warren? I thought we were doing the Warren. Uh, no, the ward is like one of the last ones. I'm pretty sure it's, I think next up we have Village of the Damned, um, which is one of those movies that sometimes you might not even think that that's a Carpenter movie, but it is. It's, well, it's, we only have, I say, we only have two left, the Village of the Damned and then the ward. Yep. Yeah, I am 90% sure it's Village of the Damned. Let me just take a look here. Oh, nope, I was wrong. It's Body Bags. Oh, I didn't even know we had that on the list. Yep, it's Body Bags. Um, Body Bags is a later Carpenter movie that's a... It's an anthology movie. So we could have done it for... We could have called this Anthalloween Part 2 and done that one too. How did we miss that during Anthalloween? I actually have never seen Body Bags. All I know about Body Bags is John Carpenter basically plays the Crypt Keeper. Yeah, yep. I also, um, you know, and this is kind of like a cheat, too, because Carpenter only really, he did two two segments of this movie. So, it, it's not all John Carpenter, but it we're going to do it anyway, because... Why not? Fuck it, we'll do it live. That's right, we always do. 
But um, I've never seen Body Bags. It was a TV movie, so that should set you up for <laughs> for it as well. Um, you know, so TV movies are always really hit and miss. But we should have fun well, with it. Should have done Elvis then instead. Yeah. So, I'm just yawning here. It's getting late. So, you can catch us for all these Carpenter hits. Um, next time, we're going to do body bags. But if you wanted to revisit any of our Carpenter movies that we've done previously or you know, keep up to date with us, you can always subscribe to us. We are on pretty much any podcasting app that you can think of. We're on Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, our home base at anchor.fm. Uh, subscribe to any of those. Leave us a nice review. Uh, that always helps us out. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Twitter, so you can find us on there. Just search for us and, and give us a like or follow. And also, we have a, um, an email address at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com. You can write to us, let us know what you want us to cover on the show, and we'll certainly keep that in, in mind and considerate, consideration for next time. Uh, you can also donate to us on Patreon or on our Anchor.fm page or at pretty much anywhere else. I think, you know, even Apple Podcasts might have a donation area now. Uh, your donation will go towards us buying beer. So we really appreciate that. We, we, we encourage you to donate so that we can continue to have new beers on the show and afford our unhealthy way of life and, and ruining our livers. So anything you can provide. So... Uh, we hope that you'll continue listening to our Carpenter series as we continue on uh, our So Creepy It's Carpenter um, Halloween festivities. And we will see you back next week for Body Bags. Take care.